Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we have a special episode of Virtual Legality for you. This is a Virtual Legality Extra meaning we're not going to be talking about video games or pop culture movies or business or anything related to the ordinary things we talk about in this space. Instead, we're going to be talking about a very significant Supreme Court decision, really a watershed Supreme Court decision in the Dobbs case here that overturns Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, two longstanding abortion precedents. And many, many, many of you asked me to talk through this case. There are so many people online, companies, other folks on social media talking about what this case means and how they are reacting to it in this particular context. And a lot of you said, Rick, can you walk through this decision? Now, if you're looking at your screen right now, you see this is a 213-page document. So yes, we're going to walk through it. We're going to do our best to explain everything that pops up while we go over some of the most salient points, but we're not going to read every word of this decision. The other thing I want to point out before we start is that I understand that the abortion question is a very, very sensitive one. It is the height of politics, and it is the most difficult task for reasonable minds to understand that they can differ. In an earlier video that I did on this very decision, because in an unprecedented course of events, this was actually leaked out to us in largely the same way in May of this year, I said that abortion presents one of the fundamental reasonable minds can differ problems because many, many people, right-thinking people, believe that there is human life either at conception or some earlier time from viability and that the law of the land should be less restrictive to states that want to restrict abortion than what Roe v. Wade and Casey provide. And many, many right-thinking people believe that the autonomy of woman and her bodily integrity is implicated inherently by allowing the state to do those very things. And so much of that is righteous. So much of that is well thought out on either side that I'm in no position to vilify either a pro-choice or a pro-life advocate on these various questions. So what I'm going to do here today is I'm going to talk to you like a lawyer. As I've said in other places in virtual legality, my old professors in law school used to say a well-written opinion will convince you when you're reading it, and then a well-written dissent will convince you of that position, diametrically opposed when you're reading that. In this particular case, I think both the opinion and the dissent make good points. You will hear me editorialize a little bit because what we are seeing is a sea change in the court's interpretation of the Constitution towards what I'm going to call originalism, which I will explain a little bit more as we get deeper into this decision. But overall, my goal here is to simply explain what is happening so that you can better make your own judgments and communicate better on social media or wherever you are communicating with the full understanding of what the court decided to do here and what it didn't decide to do. So with that as our background, let's talk about it. Here we have Thomas E. Dobbs uh, et al., on writ of certiorari to the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit and a decision by the Supreme Court from Justice Alito. Abortion presents a profound moral issue on which Americans hold sharply conflicting views. Some believe fervently that a human person comes into being at conception and that abortion ends an innocent life. Others feel just as strongly that any regulation of abortion invades a woman's right to control her own body and prevents women from achieving full equality. Still others in a third group think that abortion should be allowed under some but not all circumstances, and those within this group 
hold a variety of views about the particular restrictions that should be imposed. And this is a paragraph that opens this particular opinion, very similar to paragraphs at the top of Roe and at the top of Casey, where the Supreme Court in each instance says, look, this is a very fraught issue. Roe goes on an entire section of their opinion to talk about philosophy and the great theologians and philosophers of the day and when life begins, et cetera, et cetera. It's an interesting read if you haven't read that particular opinion. But the overall reason that this exists in these opinions is to acknowledge that people of good intention can disagree on this fundamental issue and what the court is put in front of it is what to do with that notion of competing interests between a woman and a fetus slash person, depending on exactly what your philosophy is on these kinds of things, and the competing interests of the body politic, which obviously feels very strongly about these things. Now, we'll see that Justice Alito here says essentially that the justices of the Supreme Court have to ignore the latter for the most part and do what they think is right with respect to the Constitution and the statutes in front of them. But that's why a paragraph like this exists, to signal the seriousness that the Supreme Court is taking with this particular position. You don't have to agree with any of that, by the way. I know a number of you in my comments that asked me to talk about this vehemently disagree with this decision by the court, but that's why it exists here. For the first 185 years after the adoption of the Constitution, each state was permitted to address this issue in accordance with the views of its citizens. And this is setting up what is ultimately going to be the holding of this case, that Roe and Casey will be overturned and that the decision-making in this particular question will be turned over to the states. That's a very important thing to understand even before we get to it, so spoiler alert. But this doesn't outlaw abortion in the United States. In fact, the dissent kind of chastises the majority for picking this particular route, saying, hey, if you're going to go this direction, you might as well say that the baby is more important and that that necessitates an outlawing of abortion because at least we could have the argument in good faith. There's a whole bunch of sniping in this particular case. A lot of these justices even are clearly furious or otherwise agitated uh, with each other on this question. And for good reason, as we will see as we go on. After cataloging a wealth of other information having no bearing on the meaning of the Constitution, the opinion in Roe concluded with a numbered set of rules, much like those that might be found in a statute enacted by a legislature. Under this scheme, each trimester of pregnancy was regulated differently, but the most critical line was drawn at roughly the end of the second trimester, which at the time corresponded to the point at which a fetus was thought to achieve viability, i.e. the ability to survive outside the womb. Although the court acknowledged that states had a legitimate interest in protecting quote-unquote potential life, it found that this interest could not justify any restriction on pre-viability abortions. At the time of Roe, 30 states still prohibited abortion at all stages. In the years prior to that decision, about a third of the states had liberalized their laws, but Roe abruptly ended that political process. So you can see the setup here on the second page of the opinion is there was a political process happening at the state level and Roe came in with a kind of court fiat and said, no, no, that process is short-circuited. And that's one of the things that the current court here in 2022 is going to reject. Now, as I summarize Roe and Casey through the language of the court here, I do want to point out, if you're interested in that, that earlier video that we did talked at length about the Roe decision and the Casey decision before we got to the Dobbs draft decision. So if you're interested in more details there, we're not going to be covering them at length here. You can check out that earlier video of this now 
two-part series. But overall, what the court is emphasizing is, is that this used to be a political process. And again, spoiler alert, we know that that's what the court intends to return it to. Eventually, in Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania versus Casey, the court revisited Roe, but the members of the court split three ways. It's a very messy kind of opinion. The opinion concluded that stare decisis, which calls for prior decisions to be followed in most instances, required adherence to what it called Roe's central holding, that a state may not constitutionally protect fetal life before viability, even if that holding in Roe was wrong. Paradoxically, the judgment in Casey did a fair amount of overruling. Casey threw out Roe's trimester scheme and substituted a new rule of uncertain origin under which states were forbidden to adopt any regulation that imposed an undue burden on a woman's right to have an abortion. The the decision provided no clear guidance about the difference between a due and an undue burden, but the three justices who authored the controlling opinion called the contending sides of a national controversy to end their national division by treating the court's decision as the final settlement of the question. As has become increasingly apparent in the intervening years, Casey did not achieve that goal. In this case, 26 states have expressly asked this court to overrule Roe and Casey and allow the states to regulate or prohibit pre-viability abortions. Before us now is one such law. The state of Mississippi asks us to uphold the constitutionality of a law that generally prohibits an abortion after the 15th week of pregnancy, several weeks before the point at which a fetus is now regarded as viable outside the womb. So the setup for this entire case, and it's one that Roberts, Chief Justice in his concurrence, will complain about is that Mississippi said about 15 weeks and not 24 weeks. And the court used that as the jumping off point to say that there is no constitutional right of abortion at all when the chief justice, as we will see in that concurrence, would have limited only to saying 15 weeks is okay. The viability line is no longer handled. We hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled, says the Supreme Court. The Constitution makes no reference to abortion, and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision, including the one on which the defenders of Roe and Casey now chiefly rely, the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. That provision has been held to guarantee some rights that are not mentioned in the Constitution, but any such right must be deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition and implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. So, The 14th Amendment comes in and says that the states cannot deny someone liberty without the due process of law. And this resulted in a whole body, a whole doctrine of judicial court decisions that said there are things that are implicit in that concept of liberty that are otherwise rights that are now guaranteed by the Constitution. That's called substantive due process. It sounds like it's a process thing, but it's actually substantive. There are substantive rights that are connected with it, including as Casey finally determined the right to get an abortion. The court overrules that here and says, no, that isn't in fact the case because they're going to do a historical analysis, much like we saw in Bruin when we discussed that Second Amendment case earlier today that says we can find no deeply rooted history or tradition in the right to an abortion, and it's not implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. So we'll allow some things that the Constitution doesn't state, but There have to be this kind of historical tradition that backs them up. We'll see in the dissent side of this particular case, they get very agitated about that in particular for other things like the right to same-sex marriage or the right to contraception that they think are now at issue here. The Supreme Court does promise that they are not, but the dissent is pretty capable of establishing that they might well be. So wait for that when we get to it. We've got a lot of pages to go. Until the latter part of the 20th century, such a right was entirely unknown in American law. Roe was thus 
egregiously wrong from the start, says the court. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak, and the decision has had damaging consequences. It is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. The permissibility of abortion and the limitations upon it are to be resolved like most important questions in our democracy by citizens trying to persuade one another and then voting. So the overall holding of this case, of Dobbs, is that the decision about whether to regulate abortion and how to do so is handed over to the states. And we will see later on that it is handed over to the states on the lowest level of scrutiny possible for the courts, the rational scrutiny test, which means essentially if the state has any reason that they did this statute, if it's not just wacky, if it's not just crazy and completely unsupported, then the court is generally going to defer to the state's decision on that question based on a rational basis standard. The law in this case, Mississippi's Gestational Age Act, contains the central provision that we discussed. To support this act, the legislature made a series of factual findings. It began by noting that at the time of enactment, only six countries besides the United States permitted non-therapeutic or elective abortion on demand after the 20th week of gestation. Now, Mississippi would ultimately pick week 15, but they did note that the U.S. was a bit of an outlier there. This footnote suggests that there are now currently eight countries that have that kind of allowance, but there were six when the law was passed. It's certainly on the more permissive end uh, of abortions than some other jurisdictions in the world. We granted certiorari to resolve the question whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional, but respondents answer that allowing Mississippi to ban pre-viability abortions would be no different than overruling Casey and Roe entirely. They tell us that no half measures are available. We must either reaffirm or overrule Roe and Casey. And here, rhetorically, the court is establishing why it makes the decision it is because it's defending against Chief Justice Roberts, who says that it is going too far. And they're saying, hello, the respondents told us that the only thing that we can do is overturn Roe and Casey, and so we are electing to do so. Now, this is a little bit disingenuous uh, because the court can always decide to do something more narrowly. Chief Justice Roberts has the right of that, but we will see Justice Alito and the majority here defend against that a little bit as we get towards the end of his opinion. We begin by considering the critical question, whether the Constitution, properly understood, confers a right to obtain an abortion. First, we explain the standard that our cases have used in determining whether the 14th Amendment's reference to liberty protects a particular right. Second, we examine whether the right at issue in this case is rooted in our nation's history and tradition and whether it is an essential component of what we have described as ordered liberty. Constitutional analysis must begin with the language of the instrument. As the Constitution makes no express reference to a right to obtain abortion, therefore, those who claim that it protects such a right must show that the right is somehow implicit in the constitutional text. So first we look at the Constitution. We see if it says there's a right to an abortion. We looked at it. It does not say that. So we have to look at things that are more ephemeral. Roe, however, was remarkably loose in its treatment of the constitutional text. It held that the abortion right, which is not mentioned in the Constitution, is part of a right to privacy, which is also not mentioned. And that privacy right, Roe observed, had been found to spring from no fewer than five different constitutional provisions, the 1st, 4th, 5th, 9th, and 14th Amendments. The court's discussion left open at least three ways in which some combination of these provisions could protect the abortion right. One possibility was that the right was founded in the 9th Amendment's reservation of rights to the people. Another was that the right was rooted in the 1st, 4th, or 5th, or in some combination of those provisions, and this right had been incorporated into the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, And a third path was that the 
First, Fourth, and Fifth Amendments played no role, and that the right was simply a component of the liberty protected by the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause. Roe expressed the feeling that the 14th Amendment was the provision that did the work, but its message seemed to be that the abortion right could be found somewhere in the Constitution, and that specifying its exact location was not of paramount importance. And they footnote the actual language used in Roe. This right of privacy, whether it be founded in the 14th Amendment's concept of personal liberty and restrictions upon state action as we feel it is, or as the district court determined in the Ninth Amendment's reservation of rights to the people, is broad enough to encompass a woman's decision whether or not to terminate her pregnancy. Now, I actually think this is a fair amount uh, more detailed than Alito is giving Roe credit for. I do think that Roe is a very messily decided case. You can hear me describe it as such in that earlier video. And in fact, if you go to law school, for the most part, regardless of whether or not your professor is entirely in favor of the right to abortion, chances are when you get to talking about Roe and Casey, they will discuss that it is a very messily decided set of cases. That has always been the case for any constitutional scholarship. The Casey court did not defend this unfocused analysis and instead grounded its decision solely on the theory that the right to obtain an abortion is a part of the liberty protected by the 14th Amendment's due process clause. So the 14th Amendment says states can't do anything to curtail liberty without due process. And Casey finally, along with Roe here, as we saw quoted, gets to the point that says there's a right to privacy baked into the 14th Amendment's assertions of liberty, and that right to privacy encompasses the right to an abortion. Court says we'll discuss that theory in depth below, but before doing so, we briefly address one additional constitutional provision that some of the respondents have now offered as yet another potential home for the abortion right, the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. Neither Roe nor Casey saw fit to invoke this theory, and it is squarely foreclosed by our precedents, which established that a state's regulation of abortion is not a sex-based classification and is thus not subject to the heightened scrutiny that applies to such classifications. And as the court has stated, the goal of preventing abortion does not constitute invidious discriminatory animus against women. So it's not treated as a kind of sex discrimination, heightened scrutiny standard type thing, because even though it only applies uh, to women, it doesn't otherwise uh, discriminate against them as against men. Uh, that's always a tricky thing to look at from the court's jurisprudence. But essentially, if a medical procedure is only for one sex, it isn't seen as discriminatory or the decisions based around that aren't seen as discriminatory in and of themselves. You have to look to a different precedence. And really, nobody in the court distinguishes that, including the dissent. With the new theory addressed, we turn to Casey's bold assertion that the abortion right is an aspect of the liberty protected by the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. The underlying theory on which this argument rests, that the 14th Amendment's due process clause provides substantive as well as procedural protection for liberty, has long been controversial. But our decisions have held that the due process clause protects two categories of substantive rights. Understand why it's controversial. All that the 14th Amendment says is that you can't be denied liberty without due process of law. And in general, if we were just thinking about not as lawyers, but as human beings, you'd say, okay, if there is a process, whatever is due, and you get it, then the state could deny you liberty. Uh, but that's not what the court has held. In fact, they have used that provision to say that particular language protects actual things of substance, things like the right to privacy, things like the right to bodily autonomy, live in that 14th Amendment. Now, how do they live there? Alito expounds. The first consists of rights guaranteed by the first eight amendments. Those amendments originally applied only to the federal government, but this court has held that the due process clause of the 14th Amendment incorporates 
the great majority of those rights and thus makes them equally applicable to the states. In fact, when we were discussing Bruin and how the Second Amendment, which is in the U.S. Constitution, applies to the various states, we talked about incorporation. That is to say, we know that what is in the Bill of Rights, says the court, is something that is like liberty and that the states are otherwise foreclosed from getting rid of it, that there is a constitutional right to those things in the Bill of Rights as applied to the states as well as the federal government. But that's not what we're talking about here. The second category, which is the one in question here, comprises a select list of fundamental rights that are not mentioned anywhere in the Constitution. In deciding whether a right falls into either of these categories, the court has long asked whether the right is deeply rooted in our history and tradition and whether it is essential to our nation's scheme of ordered liberty. Timms and McDonald, the two precedents that I just skipped over to get to a little bit more to the point, concerned the question whether the 14th Amendment protects rights that are expressly set out in the Bill of Rights. And it would be anomalous if similar historical support were not required when a putative right is not mentioned anywhere in the Constitution. So he says, look, even when we're applying things like the right to keep and bear arms or other things that are part of the Bill of Rights, we look at that historical tradition. So if it isn't mentioned, if we're going to look at these kind of foundational rights that are otherwise within the lines of the Constitution, those have to be uh, historical tradition type rights as well. And he goes on and says, historical inquiries of this nature are essential whenever we are asked to recognize a new component of the liberty protected by the due process clause, because the term liberty alone provides little guidance. In interpreting what is meant by the 14th Amendment's reference to liberty, we must guard against the natural human tendency to confuse what that amendment protects with our own ardent views about the liberty that Americans should enjoy. As the court cautioned in Glucksburg, we must exercise the utmost care whenever we are asked to break new ground in this field, lest the liberty protected by the due process clause be subtly transformed into the policy preferences of the members of this court. So in other words, when we look at this from Alito's perspective, he wants to be specifically focused on history and tradition and all the things that are baked into the nation when it's adopting the 14th Amendment, because he says otherwise is to take this very broad concept of liberty and to apply the court or the justice's own concepts of what that is on to what is supposed to be a fixed primary law of the land. Overall, I think that's an okay justification, but we'll see it spin out a little bit because originalism is focused intently on historical analysis that, in my experience, uh, can be tweaked however you like. And we'll see Justice Alito do that here, and we will see the dissent do that when we get to their portion of the document. On occasion, when the court has ignored the appropriate limits imposed by respect for the teachings of history, it has fallen into the freewheeling judicial policymaking that characterized discredited decisions such as Lochner v. New York. If there's any time that the court just wants to crap on a decision, they will bring up Lochner every single time. And maybe I'll do a video on Lochner, but suffice it to say there was a portion of time that the court held for something called economic liberty that allowed various actors to do various things outside of federal regulatory control. Great Depression happens, the court wheels back on that, and the Lochner era is over. Until the latter part of the 20th century, there was no support in American law for a constitutional right to obtain an abortion. And I also flag this footnote here because this is important for Justice Thomas's concurrence. All of this is true regardless of whether we look to the amendment's due process clause or its privileges or immunities clause. Two separate bits of language in the 14th Amendment, either of which you could read to giving some of these substantive rights. Justice Thomas has a real problem with the jurisprudence of the court and using the quote-unquote substantive due process doctrine. We'll get to that 
in a little bit. We begin with the common law, under which abortion was a crime, at least after quickening. English cases dating all the way back to the 13th century corroborate the treatise's statements that abortion was a crime. Although a pre-quickening abortion was not itself considered homicide, it does not follow that abortion was permissible at common law, much less that abortion was a legal right. And the few cases available from the early colonial period corroborate that abortion was a crime. Now, you might note a few things there. We went through it very quickly, but... Alito and the majority of the court does note that there was a distinction between before and after a quickening had occurred, when you can feel movement uh, of a baby in the womb. And the dissent will, in my opinion, rightly suggest that that at least sounds like an early colonial or common law notion of early stage and late stage pregnancies and when abortions might or may not be allowed. Here, the court basically frames the history here to say, look, there's a bunch of statutes and things that don't mention quickening, so that must apply whenever there's a baby, et cetera, et cetera. When you're looking at this, it's probably going to sound like whichever side you agree with has the right of it in terms of the historical analysis. And as a lawyer, when I look at constitutional decision-making like this, that's where I start to get a, a, a little bit concerned because I think that the dissent has the right of it, that you can frame this history however you might like, and that Alito plays a little bit fast and loose with what he's describing as these early stage abortion laws, rules, and regulations. In this country during the 19th century, the vast majority of the states enacted statutes criminalizing abortion at all stages of pregnancy. The inescapable conclusion is that a right to abortion is not deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions. On the contrary, an unbroken tradition of prohibiting abortion on pain of criminal punishment persisted from the earliest days of the common law until 1973. And again, that might well be the case. And I think that what is established properly here by the majority in the court is that the concept of a right to abortion at all times definitely didn't exist. Is there a right to abortion that is at least contemplated for early stage pregnancies in those early days? I have a little bit more doubt. But certainly there isn't a kind of blanket right here. The court gets that accurately. Neither respondents nor the Solicitor General disputes the fact that by 1868, the vast majority of states criminalized abortion at all stages of pregnancy, which I think is maybe a little bit even more useful evidence uh, for the court engaged in historical analysis like this one. If these states think it's constitutional to criminalize abortion at all stages of pregnancy, then chances are without a constitutional challenge, it was, at least in the understanding of these people at the 1868 level, when we're talking about the 14th Amendment. And the dissent will have its complaints about using the 14th Amendment timeframe as well. Instead of seriously pressing the argument that the abortion right itself has deep roots, supporters of Roe and Casey contend that the abortion right is an integral part of a broader entrenched right. So here the court says, okay, we've looked at history and tradition. We think ours is stronger. We think yours is weaker. And so you're going to put it in a different right, one that Casey describes. Casey elaborated, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Now, the court did not claim that this broadly framed right is absolute, and no such claim would be plausible. While individuals are certainly free to think and to say what they wish about existence, meaning the universe, and the mystery of human life, they are not always free to act in accordance with those thoughts. License to act on the basis of such beliefs may correspond to one of the many understandings of liberty— very, very liberty, but it is certainly not ordered liberty. Ordered liberty sets limits and defines the boundary between competing interests. This is something that the dissent's going to accuse the majority of missing. These attempts to justify abortion through appeals to a broader right to autonomy and to define one's concept of existence prove too much. Those criteria at a high level of generality 
could license fundamental rights to illicit drug use, prostitution, and the like. Heaven forfend. None of these rights has any claim to being deeply rooted in history. I do like that the main argument here for Melito is, my God, if we just had a generalized right to autonomy, there could be prostitutes everywhere and people doing coke in different places. And where would we be then? Uh, and fair enough, Justice Alito, uh, but certainly it's an amusing bit of a side here in this particular case. What sharply distinguishes the abortion right from the rights recognized in the cases on which Roe and Casey rely is something that both of those decisions acknowledged. Abortion destroys what those decisions call potential life and what the law at issue in this case regards as the life of an unborn human being. This is actually very, very important in what Justice Alito is saying, especially as it relates to things like media coverage and what the dissent is going to accuse the majority of doing, which is attacking things like contraception or same-sex marriage and those kinds of things. Here, Alito is establishing that at least according to him right now in this case, that this is different, that Roe v. Wade, that Casey, that now Dobbs are different because there is a bona fide black and white competing interest question between the life of the woman and the life within her. And that that doesn't exist in similar situations that the dissent and others that are reporting on this case are worried about. Your mileage may vary on whether or not you want to take that seriously, but I do agree in broad strokes that abortion is distinguishable from the other rights that substantive due process has otherwise granted. Further, they say abortion is nothing new. It has been addressed by lawmakers for centuries, and the fundamental moral question that it poses is ageless. We'll come back to that quote. Both sides make important policy arguments, but supporters of Roe and Casey must show that this court has the authority to weigh those arguments and decide how abortion may be regulated in the states. They have failed to make that showing, and we thus return the power to weigh those arguments to the people and their elected representatives. So here, Alito is saying, look, you make good policy cases that you could be for or against this particular procedure or that particular line, but we're the wrong people to ask about it. And in fact, under our constitutional structure, the right people to ask are in fact the legislatures of the states. The dissent is very candid that it cannot show that a constitutional right to abortion has any foundation, let alone a deeply rooted one, in this nation's history and tradition. The dissent does not identify any pre-Roe authority that supports such a right, no state constitutional provision or statute, no federal or state judicial precedent, not even a scholarly treatise. The dissent's failure to engage with this long tradition is devastating to its position, and the dissent cannot establish that a right to abortion has ever been part of this nation's tradition. And I would say, fundamentally, it's because at a philosophical level, the dissent doesn't agree with any of this in terms of the historical notion of looking at this. They aren't originalists. They are living constitutionalists, and we will see that, and your mileage may vary on which philosophy you prefer here. What we don't see a lot of is textualism uh, in this particular case, other than abortion doesn't appear in the Constitution at all. Because the dissent cannot argue that the abortion right is rooted in this nation's history and tradition, it contends that the constitutional tradition is not captured whole at a single moment and that its meaning gains content from the long sweep of our history and from successive judicial precedents. This vague formulation imposes no clear restraints on what Justice White called the exercise of raw judicial power. It's just interesting because Alito is saying the dissent wants to use raw judicial power, and the dissent is saying that Alito in the majority wants to use raw judicial power by just overturning things without looking at stare decisis. And, well, again, we're in a position where your mileage may vary. 
First, if the long sweep of history imposes any restraint on the recognition of unenumerated rights, then Roe was surely wrong since abortion was never allowed except to save the life of the mother in a majority of states for over 100 years before that decision was handed down. So if the Constitution is morphing and changing, then we can look at a whole host of years that lead us to abortion being effectively illegal in a lot of these places. The most striking feature of the dissent is the absence of any serious discussion of the legitimacy of the state's interest in protecting fetal life. Now buckle up, because here, Justice Alito is going to talk to the dissent and essentially argue, almost Twitter-like, that they don't care about babies. This is evident in the analogy that the dissent draws between the abortion right and the rights recognized in Griswold, Eisenstadt, Lawrence, and Oberfels. Perhaps this is designed to stoke unfounded fear that our decision will imperil those other rights, but the dissent's analogy is objectionable for a more important reason, what it reveals about the dissent's views on the protection of what Roe called potential life. The exercise of the rights at issue in Griswold, Eisenstadt, Lawrence, and Obergefell does not destroy a potential life, but an abortion has that effect. So, if the rights at issue in those cases are fundamentally the same as the right recognized in Roe and Casey, the implication is clear. The Constitution does not permit the states to regard the destruction of a potential life as a matter of any significance. That view is evident throughout the dissent. The dissent has much to say about the effects of pregnancy on women, the burdens of motherhood, and the difficulties faced by poor women. These are important concerns. However, the dissent evinces no similar regard for a state's interest in protecting prenatal life. Again, if you're in favor of this decision, this is the kind of language that you're going to see quoted on that particular side, the side backing the Supreme Court here, which is Justice Alito effectively calling out the dissent and saying, you give absolutely no credence to anything but the mother's autonomy. And this is clearly an issue of competing interests at some level, regardless of whether or not it's at conception or a later time, something that even Rowell and Casey acknowledged. Our opinion, says Alito, is not based on any view about if and when prenatal life is entitled to any of the rights enjoyed after birth. The dissent, by contrast, would impose on the people a particular theory about when the rights of personhood begin. According to the dissent, the Constitution requires the states to regard a fetus as lacking even the most basic human right to live, at least until an arbitrary point in a pregnancy has passed. So, Justice Alito has laid his cards on the table at this point, saying that the states can look at this particular question and the dissent and Roe and Casey have effectively taken that decision away from them and said only this particular balancing can be applied to the entire country. And he's not wrong there. The question is whether you agree with that philosophy or not. We next consider whether the doctrine of stare decisis counsels continued acceptance of Roe and Casey. If you aren't familiar with that from a legal perspective, I haven't defined it until now. It's a basic notion that earlier precedents should at least partially lock in the court. It restrains judicial hubris, reminds us to respect the judgment of those who have grappled with important questions in the past. We have long recognized, says Justice Alito, however, that stare decisis is not an inexorable command. In fact, if we're using Pirates of the Caribbean talk, it's more like guidelines, right? As we look at this particular thing, it's the Supreme Court deciding for itself whether or not something was badly enough decided to overturn. And there's no court higher than the Supreme Court. So basically they're where the buck stops and stare decisis is more of a suggestion and an ideal than anything else. Here, Justice Alito then goes on to defend why it's being overturned. 
Some of our most important constitutional decisions have overruled prior precedents. We mentioned three. In Brown v. Board of Education, the court repudiated the separate but equal doctrine. In West Coast Hotel v. Parrish, the court overruled Adkins v. Children's Hospital, which had held that a law setting minimum wages for women violated the economic liberty protected by the Fifth Amendment's due process clause. Finally, in West Virginia Board of Education v. Barnett, after the lapse of only three years, the court overruled Minersville School District v. Gubbitz and held that public school students could not be compelled to salute the flag in violation of their sincere beliefs. On many other occasions, this court has overruled important constitutional decisions. We include a partial list in the footnote that follows. Here is footnote 48. It gets its own page. This is what we call a string citation. Here the court is trying to make a point. Hey, we overturn decisions all the time. This is no extra thing here. Now the dissent will argue that all of those are distinguishable, uh, but that's really a fight among philosophies. No justice of this court has ever argued that the court should never overrule a constitutional decision, but overruling a precedent is a serious matter. In this case, five factors weigh strongly in favor of overruling Rowan Casey, the nature of their error, the quality of their reasoning, the workability of the rules they imposed on the country, their disruptive effect on other areas of the law, and the absence of concrete reliance. So first we start with the nature of the error. An erroneous interpretation of the Constitution is always important, but some are more damaging than others. For reasons we already explained, Roe's constitutional analysis was far outside the bounds of any reasonable interpretation of the various constitutional provisions to which it vaguely pointed. The quality of the reasoning. Roe found that the Constitution implicitly conferred a right to obtain an abortion, but it failed to ground its decision in text, history, or precedent. The weakness in Roe's reasoning are well known. And as I said before, they really are. If you actually go to law school or otherwise study the Roe case, it is very, very messy and very messily handled in terms of logic. That doesn't mean one thing or the other in terms of the ultimate resolution of the case that the court found, but it does mean that it is very susceptible to challenge because it is so messily handled and the Casey court tried to clean that up. This elaborate scheme was the court's own brainchild. Neither party advocated the trimester framework, nor did either party or any amicus argue that viability should mark the point at which the scope of the abortion right and a state's regulatory authority should be substantially transformed. Not only did this scheme resemble the work of a legislature, but the court made little effort to explain how these rules could be deduced from any of the sources on which constitutional decisions are usually based. Finally, after all of this, the court turned to precedent. Citing a broad array of cases, the court found support for a constitutional right of personal privacy, but it conflated two very different meanings of the term, the right to shield information from disclosure and the right to make and implement important personal decisions without government interference. The scheme Roe produced looked like legislation and the court provided the sort of explanation that might be expected from a legislative body. Said another way, it put forth policy. It invented rules that didn't otherwise exist. It legislated from the bench. I don't think Alito is wrong. That doesn't mean one thing or the other in terms of the constitutional rights that we're discussing in this particular case, but it is worth noting that Roe did have this legislative effect. It is exactly what Casey tried to clean up, at least somewhat. Justice Alito continues here talking about the bad reasoning of these various cases. Going on to Casey, the viability line, which Casey termed Roe's central rule, makes no sense, and it is telling that other countries almost uniformly eschew such a line. All in all, Roe's reasoning was exceedingly weak, and academic commentators, including those who agreed with the decision as a matter of policy, were unsparing in their criticism. When Casey revisited Roe almost 20 years later, very little of Roe's reasoning was defended or preserved. As discussed below, Casey also deployed a novel version of the doctrine of stare decisis. This new doctrine did not account for the profound wrongness of the decision in Roe and placed great weight on an intangible form of reliance, 
with little, if any, basis in prior case law. Then we have workability. Our precedents counsel that another important consideration in deciding whether a precedent should be overruled is whether the rule it imposes is workable. That is, whether it can be understood and applied in a consistent and predictable manner. As Justice Scalia noted in his Casey partial dissent, determining whether a burden is due or undue is inherently standardless. And here Alito then says that the cases at the state level and otherwise are having all sorts of different problems. The difficulty of applying Casey's new rule surfaced in that very case. The controlling opinion found that Pennsylvania's 24-hour waiting period requirement and its informed consent provision did not impose undue burdens, but Justice Stevens applying the same test reached the opposite result, and that did not bode well. Indeed, it's a very amorphous kind of standard. The dissent kind of takes that in, which we will see, and then says we've got a lot of amorphous standards in constitutional law. That doesn't mean we overturn everything that we've otherwise put forth. Effect on other areas of law. Here, the Justice Alito has a very short argument. Members of this court have repeatedly lamented that no legal rule or doctrine is safe from ad hoc nullification by this court when an occasion for its application arises in a case involving state regulation of abortion. And basically just says, look, abortion is having all sorts of trouble because of all of these different standards. And that presents essentially a workability issue, but here that it's affecting all sorts of things at the court level. And then we get to reliance interests. And this is really where most of the fight is between the court's decision and the dissent. They say traditional reliance interests arise where advanced planning of great precision is most obviously a necessity. Overall, we don't want to overturn precedents if people have otherwise detrimentally relied on the fact that the law is what we said earlier, right? If people somehow had a law on the books that meant that they bought a house and a boat or anything else, and then we overturn it in the midst of their purchasing that house or boat, well, that isn't great for those people that relied on the law as it stood. Here, the court says, where advanced planning of great precision is necessary, that's where we're most worried about overturning something because if you have a long lead time, if you need a lot of planning, that's the kind of thing that could really hurt people. In Casey, the controlling opinion conceded that those traditional reliance interests were not implicated because getting an abortion is generally unplanned activity and reproductive planning could take virtually immediately uh, immediate account of any sudden restoration of state authority to ban abortions. Said another way, Casey said you could make different personal life decisions immediately after a case like this one, like Dobbs, would otherwise be passed. Unable to find reliance in the conventional sense, the controlling opinion in Casey perceived a more intangible form of reliance. It wrote that people had organized intimate relationships and made choices that defined their views of themselves and their places in society in reliance on the availability of abortion in the event that contraception should fail, and that the ability of women to participate equally in the economic and social life of the nation has been facilitated by their ability to control their reproductive lives. But, says Justice Alito, this court is ill-equipped to assess generalized assertions about the national psyche. So what you're seeing here is that the Supreme Court is going to say you need something concrete that you have relied on to worry about it from a starry decisis perspective and not this kind of generalized where people find themselves in their society and the national psyche. Our decision returns the issue of abortion to those legislative bodies and it allows women on both sides of the abortion issue to seek to affect the legislative process by influencing public opinion, lobbying legislators, voting and running for office. Women are not without electoral or political power. So that's kind of trying to diffuse some of the arguments that they're stripping women of rights when they're saying that they're putting the rights at issue in the states and those women can otherwise take political power within those states. Again, reasonable minds can differ. Your mileage may vary on that. And to ensure that our decision is not misunderstood or mischaracterized, 
We emphasize that our decision concerns the constitutional right to abortion and no other right. Nothing in this opinion should be understood to cast doubt on precedents that do not concern abortion. More on that later. Having shown that traditional stare decisis factors do not weigh in favor of retaining Roe or Casey, we must address one final argument that featured prominently in the Casey plurality. The argument was cast in different terms, but stated simply, it was essentially as follows. The American people's belief in the rule of law would be shaken if they lost respect for this court as an institution that decides important cases based on principle, not social and political pressures. The analysis starts out on the right foot, but ultimately veers off course. The Casey plurality was certainly right that it is important for the public to perceive that our decisions are based on principle, and we should make every effort to achieve that objective by issuing opinions that carefully show how a proper understanding of the law leads to the results we reach. But we cannot exceed the scope of our authority under the Constitution, and we cannot allow our decisions to be affected by any extraneous influences such as concern about the public's reaction to our work. Now, while I tend to agree that Justice Alito is saying here that the court has to analyze the law and should not concern itself with public opinion or these various other things like the legitimacy of the court. Certainly we have seen, especially the Roberts court, make decisions and put forth opinions that are explicitly designed to either protect the legitimacy of the court concept or otherwise to manage the political or public fallout for whatever the decision winds up being. What's so interesting about this particular case is that because Roberts wants a narrow ruling, he doesn't find himself in the proper majority and doesn't otherwise write the decision and get those five votes for himself. So Roberts is sitting out on an island saying, I would not have overturned over here, but otherwise he wants to put forth what has become very much the Roberts court type of opinion, which is very narrow and otherwise kicks the question down the road a little bit further each and every time. Here, Alito is saying the right things, I think, and even the dissent, if you absolutely force them, would agree with this overall concept, but he's saying them in a fairly disingenuous way from my reading, because I've watched this court for a number of years, and depending on what's in front of it, you'll find this falls by the wayside, and there's suddenly decisions that are made for other reasons. Not necessarily Justice Alito, so we can give him some credence there, but certainly other members of the court. We do not pretend to know how our political system or society will respond to today's decision over ruling Roe and Casey, and even if we could foresee what will happen, we would have no authority to let that knowledge influence our decision. We therefore hold that the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion, Roe and Casey must be overruled, and the authority to regulate abortion must be returned to the people and their elected representatives. Precedents should be respected, but sometimes the court errs, and occasionally the court issues an important decision that is egregiously wrong. We continue on a little bit. We now turn to the concurrence in the judgment, which reproves us, reproves us for deciding whether Roe and Casey should be retained or overruled. And this is them defending themselves against Chief Justice Roberts. That opinion, which for convenience we will simply call the concurrence, recommends a more measured course, which it defends based on what it claims is a straightforward stare decisis analysis. The concurrence would leave for another day whether to reject any right to an abortion at all, and would hold only that if the Constitution protects any such right, the right ends once women have had, quote-unquote, a reasonable opportunity to obtain an abortion. The concurrence does not specify what period of time is sufficient to provide such an opportunity, but it would hold that 15 weeks, the period allowed under Mississippi's law, is enough, at least absent rare circumstances. There are serious problems with this approach, and it is revealing that nothing like it was recommended by either party. As we have recounted, both parties and the Solicitor General have urged us 
either to reaffirm or overrule Roe and Casey. The Solicitor General argued that abandoning the viability line would leave courts and others with no continued guidance. The concurrence would do exactly what it criticizes Roe for doing, pulling out of thin air a test that no party or amicus asked the court to adopt. So just stopping for a second, we're going to see this again when we get to the Roberts concurrence itself. But Justice Alito basically has the right of this. What Roberts puts forth is, yeah, this law is probably fine. And that's because the woman had enough time to figure out whether she needed an abortion. And we're not going to put forth any other bright line rules, which is perfectly well and good for narrowing what you want the court to do. And I don't object to that. That's Roberts' philosophy overall. But it is standardless. It doesn't provide any context for what the line might actually be after that decision were otherwise turned down to the lower courts. And it doesn't establish any reasoning for why it would exist other than in Robert's mind. So it has the same messiness as Roe and Casey. And in fact, in that way, probably speaks less to overturning either of them because it doesn't present a bright line rule at all. The concurrence's most fundamental defect is its failure to offer any principled basis for its approach. Therefore, a new rule that discards the viability rule cannot be defended on stare decisis grounds. When the court reconsidered Roe and Casey, it left no doubt about the importance of the viability rule. It described the rule as Roe's central holding. For all these reasons, stare decisis cannot justify the new quote-unquote reasonable opportunity rule propounded by the concurrence. If that rule is to become the law of the land, it must stand on its own, but the concurrence makes no attempt to show that this rule represents a correct interpretation of the, con- uh, of the Constitution, or it's deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition, implicit in the concept of ordered liberty, etc. The concurrence would leave for another day whether to reject any right to an abortion at all, but another day would not be long in coming. Some states have set deadlines for obtaining an abortion that are shorter than Mississippi's. If we held only that Mississippi's 15-week rule is constitutional, we would soon be called upon to pass on the constitutionality of a panoply of laws with shorter deadlines or no deadline at all. The measured course charted by the concurrence would be fraught with turmoil until the court answered the question that the concurrence seeks to defer. Now, this line, which is what I have often accused Roberts of doing, which is kind of skipping the important question and making people litigate for decades in order to get to the core of a matter, whether you agree with whatever the core of that matter is or not, is really one of the first times I have seen a justice of the Supreme Court really come at Roberts in full force on this notion. This is an accurate critique of what Roberts does. Now, you might agree with Roberts' philosophy on this, and that's fine, but this is accurate to what he does, and he puts these kinds of questions in this particular uh, level of fraughtness all the time. But here, Alito is calling him out for it. In sum, the concurrence quest for a middle way would only put off the day when we would be forced to confront the question we now decide. The turmoil wrought by Roe and Casey would be prolonged. It is far better for this court and the country to face up to the real issue without further delay. It's not terribly often, in my experience reading these things, that you see such pointed language, especially from folks that are at least ostensibly on the same ideological side within the court. So you're seeing some of the fractures I talked about at the top of this video. You're seeing some of this consternation. Under our precedents, rational basis review is the appropriate standard for the challenges. It follows that the states may regulate abortion for legitimate reasons. And when such regulations are challenged under the Constitution, courts cannot substitute their social and economic beliefs for the judgment of legislative bodies. So rational basis review. If you watched my Second Amendment video already today, you know that this is the level of review that basically says uh, the government wins, in this case, the states, because all they have to establish is some kind of rationale that isn't crazy to allow their statute to otherwise survive. And this happens 
because the Supreme Court just found that there is no constitutional right to an abortion, which means that the government, as long as it's within the powers otherwise afforded to them, and in the state's case, general health and welfare and police powers are always afforded to them, then if there is some kind of rationale, they're going to be allowed to do it. And also, as the dissent will note, because as this majority has already pointed out, protection of unborn life is always rational, the states are going to have a pretty large ambit to go forward with the regulations that they might otherwise propose. We end this opinion where we began. Abortion presents a profound moral question. The Constitution does not prohibit the citizens of each state from regulating or prohibiting abortion. Rowan Casey arrogated that authority. We now overrule those decisions and return that authority to the people and their elected representatives. And then we have many, many pages of appendices. So before we get to the concurrences, before we get to the dissents, we've now read through the actual Dobbs opinion. And the big takeaways here are that one, Roe and Casey are overruled. Two, that doesn't outlaw abortion. What it does is it says the states get to decide exactly what regulations they want to impose or not impose. There will be many states that don't impose regulations on abortion uh, that are more uh, broad or more strict than what the Roe and Casey regime would have done. And there will be many states, as we've already seen today, that have laws that are already on the books that are ready to trigger when a case like this comes down. And so there will be broader bans on abortion in many of those states, particularly in the middle of the country. But it doesn't mean that abortion is otherwise outlawed as a federal concern. It becomes a state question as it was before 1973. Now we have this long section of appendices here that Justice Alito was using to establish that there were many, many laws against abortion in various states uh, during the early stages of the Republic, the United States here. And like I said, there's many, many pages. And we're going to skip these because they're just essentially examples of what Alito was using to establish the historical precedents. One other takeaway, of course, being that like the Bruin decision, Dobbs is indicative of a court that is controlled seemingly by an originalist block of jurists here that are going to start analyzing more and more of the Constitution on the basis of when these various provisions of the Constitution, the 14th Amendment, the Second Amendment, other amendments were otherwise passed to do their analysis, that we're going to get into more historical analysis in order to win the hearts and minds of the Supreme Court. And that means that more historical analysis will be happening at the Court of Appeals level in order to make sure you're not overturned uh, by this same Supreme Court. Now, Justice Thomas has put the fear of God in some people in his concurrence because he is very much against substantive due process, that doctrine we talked about earlier. I join the opinion of the court because it correctly holds that there is no constitutional right to abortion. I write separately to emphasize a second, more fundamental reason why there is no abortion guarantee lurking in the due process clause. Considerable historical evidence indicates that due process of law merely required executive and judicial actors to comply with legislative enactments and the common law when depriving a person of life, liberty, or property. Other sources, by contrast, suggest that due process of law prohibited legislatures from authorizing the deprivation of a person's life, liberty, or property without providing the customary procedures to which freemen were entitled by the old law of England. But it does not, as the court's substantive due process cases suppose, forbid the government to infringe certain fundamental liberty rights at all, no matter what process is provided. Now, that's interesting because a great deal of what we might consider the current cultural constitutional jurisprudence is based on the premise that these various rights are protected under that substantial due process doctrine. So as Justice Thomas expounds, 
For that reason, in future cases, we should reconsider all of this court's substantive due process precedents, including Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell, because any substantive due process decision is demonstrably erroneous. Now, that's been reported on in various places as Justice Thomas wants to overturn contraception rights and same-sex marriage rights and all these various things, and he might, but in his jurisprudence, what he has predominantly said is what follows here, which is that if we don't use substantive due process, there might be another place to go find it in the 14th Amendment. After overruling these demonstrably erroneous decisions, the question would remain whether other constitutional provisions guarantee the myriad rights that our substantive due process cases have generated. For example, we could consider whether any of the rights announced in this court's substantive due process cases are privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States protected by the 14th Amendment. So he would essentially swap, for the most part, substantive due process with privileges and immunities. Of course, that process itself is fraught because what he says is we'll overrule them and then we'll figure out what survives that process. And this has been reported on in a lot of places and is mentioned by the dissent pretty prominently because obviously this is the opposite of what the majority said with respect to we're only ruling on abortion, nothing else is implicated. Justice Thomas says, yeah, it's implicated. All this stuff should fall. Uh, And that has been a major item of concern for folks that are reporting on this decision. First, as he continues, substantive due process exalts judges at the expense of the people from whom they derive their authority. And he's got all these measurable problems, the parade of horribles, as we say, for that particular doctrine. Because the court properly applies our substantive due process precedents to reject the fabrication of a constitutional right to abortion, and because this case does not present the opportunity to reject substantive due process entirely, I join the court's opinion. But we should eliminate it from our jurisprudence at the earliest opportunity. So he writes a concurrence just to say, down with uh, substantive due process in its entirety. Justice Kavanaugh is basically the opposite. He wants to say exactly what the majority said, that we're only deciding this on abortion. When it comes to abortion, one interest must prevail over the other at any given point in a pregnancy uh, between the unborn life and the woman. Many Americans of good faith would prioritize the interests of the pregnant woman. Many other Americans of good faith instead would prioritize the interest in protecting fetal life at least unless, for example, an abortion is necessary to save the life of the mother. Of course, many Americans are conflicted or have nuanced views that may vary depending on the particular time in pregnancy or the particular circumstances of the pregnancy. The issue before this court, however, is not the policy or morality of abortion. The issue before this court is what the Constitution says, and the Constitution does not take sides. On the question of abortion, the Constitution is therefore neither pro-life nor pro-choice. Because the Constitution is neutral on the issue of abortion, this court also must be scrupulously neutral. The nine unelected members of this court do not possess the constitutional authority to override the democratic process and to decree either a pro-life or a pro-choice abortion policy for all 330 million people in the United States. So Kavanaugh's approach here is to say, we're being neutral. And the dissent will call him out for it. And you can agree with them or disagree with them. But he's saying we're being neutral on this. To be clear, the court's decision today does not outlaw abortion throughout the United States. In sum, the Constitution is neutral on the issue of abortion and allows the people and their elected representatives to address the issue through the democratic process. In my respectful view, the court in Roe therefore erred by taking sides on the issue of abortion. He says the more difficult question is stare decisis. He talks about it a little bit. He says the court in Roe erroneously assigned itself the authority to decide a critically important moral and policy issue that the Constitution does not grant this court the authority to decide by taking sides on a difficult and contentious issue on which the Constitution is neutral, Roe overreached and exceeded this court's constitutional authority 
gravely distorted the nation's understanding of this court's proper constitutional role and caused significant harm to what Roe itself recognized as the state's important and legitimate interest in protecting fetal life. And that's the basic justification for why stare decisis shouldn't be applied or why an overturn is okay. In short, Casey's stare decisis analysis rested in part on a predictive judgment about the future development of state laws and the people's views on the abortion issue, but that predictive judgment has not borne out. After today's decision, the nine members of this court will no longer decide the basic legality of pre-viability abortion for all 330 million Americans. That issue will be resolved by the people and their representatives in the democratic process in the states or Congress. But the party's arguments have raised other related questions, and I addressed some of them here. Now, here's where things really go off the rails for Justice Kavanaugh. The entirety of the Article Three judicial process is designed around the fact that justices of the court or judges of the court are not supposed to answer questions that don't relate to cases and controversies before them. Different jurisdictions have different rules on this subject, but it means that our judges are not supposed to just hypothesize what they might do in a given case versus another case. But here, Justice Kavanaugh does the opposite. First, he says this won't affect anything. I emphasize what the court today states. Overruling Roe does not mean the overruling of these other precedents and does not threaten or cast doubt on those precedents. That's probably okay. That's what the majority said, says, hey, we don't intend for this to be applied more broadly. And and that's okay to kind of give contours to their opinion. But this second paragraph is just odd. Second, as I see it, some of the other abortion-related legal questions raised by today's decision are not especially difficult as a constitutional matter. For example, may a state bar a resident of that state from traveling to another state to obtain an abortion? In my view, which he has to say because he's not the court, the answer is no, based on the constitutional right to interstate travel. May a state retroactively impose liability or punishment for an abortion that occurred before today's decision takes effect? In my view, the answer is no, based on the due process clause or the ex post facto clause. You can't punish things before the law was actually enacted. You know, talk to the tax man about that in particular. But here we have Justice Kavanaugh attempting to diffuse some of the things that we have seen raised. And this might have been written after the leak of the case when we saw various people complaining about the impact of it. Either way, it's highly unusual for a justice to go in and say, let me answer some questions that aren't before me right now. And in fact... It's the nature of not answering questions that are before you that have caused a little bit of consternation online with folks accusing the justices of the court of lying about how they felt about Roe v. Wade. Now, I will tell you, I've looked at those quotes. I've looked at those videos. It's just an aside. I don't feel like they're lying. They say things like it's established law or it is existing Supreme Court precedent. That's not wrong. That's not a lie. That's an assertion of what it actually is. That also doesn't bind them from overturning existing law or existing Supreme Court precedent. In fact, you don't have to do stare decisis at all if you don't think it's legitimate precedent. So the fact that that analysis is happening means that they do acknowledge it as precedent, but they find the various aspects of the law and jurisprudence in general to allow them to overturn it because it was egregiously decided according to them before, et cetera, et cetera. And if you're wondering why that doesn't come out in the Senate hearings for confirmation, that's kind of a longstanding tradition from at least the 90s where uh, Justice Ginsburg was effectively told, don't answer anything of substance, don't answer anything that could become before the court, and the Senate was essentially told to take it. And since then, basically everybody has gone up there and said basically nothing. I can't talk about anything that might come before the court. Yes, that's law. Yes, that's precedent. And nothing of substance of how they might rule. Now, I personally think that's a bit broken of a system for consenting to who is going to be on the Supreme Court. And ultimately, if I were on the Senate or if I were all 100 people 
uh, in, in the Senate, I might look at that and say, if you don't answer me, you're not getting consented to because that's within our power. We have that plenary authority under the Constitution, and I might seek to change that. But as it stands right now, the Senate basically looks at these nominees and they don't answer anything. And I believe Ginsburg got 90 votes or something by not answering any questions and, and you know, bully for her. But that's been every nominee ever since. Uh, so looking at that, I think they didn't answer the question. I think they implied to people that are just watching that they did answer the question. And maybe that's not the greatest thing for one of our branches of government or institutions of the United States. Uh, But that goes back effectively to the Senate not holding anybody's feet to the fire and making them answer questions about their judicial philosophy, which is an aside. But it's interesting because that's Kavanaugh in front of the Senate saying, I can't answer anything. And here he's answering things that he's just making up out of his head. Uh, So very interesting kind of turn of events there. That's the Kavanaugh uh, concurrence. Then we get to Chief Justice Roberts, who's clearly irked. We granted certiorari to decide one question, whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional. Today, the court nonetheless rules for Mississippi by doing that, overturning Roe v. Wade. I would take a more measured course. I agree with the court that the viability line established by Roe and Casey should be discarded under a straightforward stare decisis analysis. That line never made any sense. Our abortion precedents describe the right at issue as a woman's right to choose to terminate her pregnancy. That right should therefore extend far enough to ensure a reasonable opportunity to choose, but need not extend any further. And that's where we get kind of Chief Justice Roberts does his own rulemaking from the bench. The woman should have a reasonable opportunity to choose. Good luck, lower courts. But that is all I would say out of adherence to a simple yet fundamental principle of judicial restraint. If it is not necessary to decide more to dispose of a case, then it is necessary not to decide more. And this has been Robert's governing philosophy. So he stands tall with that. And he said that for a long time. He goes on from there. In short, the viability rule was created outside the ordinary course of litigation, is and always has been completely unreasoned and fails to take account of state interests since recognized as legitimate. So he doesn't agree with the Roe viability line. But none of this requires that we also take the dramatic step of altogether eliminating the abortion right first recognized in Roe. After we granted certiorari, Mississippi changed course. And this is where he gets into the politics of the situation. He basically accused the state of Mississippi of gaming him. He says, when the state petitioned for our review, they asked us to clarify whether abortion prohibitions before viability are always unconstitutional. So, all right, we can answer that question. After we granted cert, though, They changed course, and in their principal brief, the state bluntly announced the court should overrule Roe and Casey. The court now rewards that gambit, noting three times that the parties presented no half measures and argued that we must either reaffirm or overrule Roe and Casey. So here, Chief Justice Roberts flat out says the court, the majority, and the state of Mississippi gamed the system to get certiorari and now are using that to overturn Roe and Casey. He further says the framing afforded by the majority is not accurate. In its brief on the merits, Mississippi, in fact, argued at length that a decision simply rejecting the viability rule would result in a judgment in its favor. Here, there is a clear path to deciding this case correctly without overruling Roe all the way down to the studs, recognize that the viability line must be discarded, as the majority rightly does, and leave for another day whether to reject any right to an abortion at all. Now, this is weird. Like I said, I think Chief Justice Roberts provides an absolutely standardless rule in this concurrence, which in fairness is because it doesn't matter. He isn't writing the opinion for the court, but he basically says it's something like reasonable amount of time uh, for the woman. uh, And you can just put that in place and we can decide on whether there's a right to abortion or not later on. Of course, such an approach would not be available if the rationale of Rowan Casey was inextricably entangled with and dependent upon the viability standard. It is not. 
And here you have a major disagreement between Justice Alito and Justice Roberts, where Justice Alito says, yes, Casey says it's the central holding of Roe. Roe had it as its central holding. So if we're getting rid of the viability standard, we're overturning those cases. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts says, no, no, uh, the central holding is a right to abortion. I tend to agree. And we can move that line as we will. Hopefully, if he were writing the opinion with a little bit more meat on the bones as to what he means by this rule. The court's decision to overrule Roe and Casey is a serious jolt to the legal system, regardless of how you view those cases. A narrower decision rejecting the misguided viability line would be markedly less unsettling, and nothing more is needed to decide the case. Under the narrower approach proposed here, state laws outlawing abortion altogether would still violate binding precedent, and to the extent states have laws that set the cutoff date earlier than 15 weeks, any litigation over that time frame would proceed free of the distorting effect the viability rule has had on our constitutional debate. Here he's saying, well, if we reduce it to 15 weeks, then the parade of lawsuits we will have for lower and lower times that Alito says are coming, which they would be, doesn't matter because we've gotten rid of that whole viability problem. Uh, and now we're talking about something in a more fully realized setting because it's my rule. It gets very confusing here. And I don't think Roberts has well thought out this particular position. All that is clear here is that he wants to slice the onion more thinly. He wants to be more narrow in the approach. And he's angry or upset or frustrated or irked that the court has taken this opportunity to go and overturn those cases. Both the court's opinion and the dissent display a relentless freedom from doubt on the legal issue that I cannot share. I am not sure, for example, that a ban on terminating a pregnancy from the moment of conception must be treated the same under the Constitution as a ban after 15 weeks. A thoughtful member of this court once counseled that the difficulty of a question admonishes us to observe the wise limitations on our function and to confine ourselves to deciding only what is necessary to the disposition of the immediate case. I would decide the question we granted review to answer whether the previously recognized abortion right bars all abortion restrictions prior to viability, such that a ban on abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy is necessarily unlawful. The answer to that question is no, and there is no need to go further to decide this case. Again, Chief Justice Roberts, always as narrow as possible. And here the court says, if we're going to overturn viability, then we've overturned all of the thought process of Roe and Casey. Reasonable minds can differ here. I tend to agree with Chief Justice Roberts that the central holding in Roe and Casey, despite what those cases actually say in their words, is that there is a constitutionally recognized right to abortion. Then the rules around them, the kind of legislating from the bench, is a little bit ancillary to that overall notion, which you can see because the difference between allowing abortions uh, after 15 weeks or before 15 weeks but not after and otherwise allowing the states to decide everything on this question are fundamentally quantitatively different. And that's what Roberts is pointing out. Now we get to the dissent. Interestingly, we don't have separate authors for the dissent. We just have the three writing together here. And folks, this gets snarky. Uh, They're very upset about this decision. And we'll see some legal uh, jousting here in various bits of the language. Rowan Casey well understood the difficulty and divisiveness of the abortion issue. Today, the court discards the balance that was established in Roe and Casey. It says that from the very moment of fertilization, a woman has no rights to speak of. A state can force her to bring a pregnancy to term, even at the steepest personal and familial costs. An abortion restriction the majority holds is permissible whenever rational, the lowest level of scrutiny known to the law. And because, as the court has often stated, protecting fetal life is rational, states will feel free to enact all manner of restrictions. 
And there, I think the dissent makes a good point. Alito has established that protecting fetal life, unborn life, is 100% a viable, legitimate interest of the state. And once you've already agreed to that, then anything they do to protect it is going to pass most versions of a rational basis test. Now, does it belong with the states or the federal government? I think here the dissent frames the issue a, a little bit hyperbolically because at all levels you have a government deciding various things, whether it's the Supreme Court, the federal legislature, or the state legislature. But certainly on the knowledge that many of these states are going to do something that a whole host of people won't like, there is a proper notion that they're not going to like what those states decide to do. Uh, and so I think the dissent makes a good point here. Uh, we'll see whether or not they continue to make them as we go along. Enforcement of all these draconian restrictions will also be left largely to the state's devices. A state can, of course, impose criminal penalties on abortion providers, including lengthy prison sentences, but some states will not stop there. Perhaps in the wake of today's decision, a state law will criminalize the woman's conduct too, incarcerating or fining her for daring to seek or obtain an abortion. Could happen under the jurisprudence of the court here. We don't know what will happen. The majority tries to hide the geographically expansive effects of its holdings. Today's decision, the majority says, permits each state to address abortion as it pleases. That is cold comfort, of course, for the poor woman who cannot get the money to fly to a distant state for a procedure. Above all others, women lacking financial resources will suffer from today's decision. In any event, interstate restrictions will also soon be in the offing. After this decision, some states may block women from traveling out of state to obtain abortions or even from receiving abortion medications from out of state. Now, interestingly enough, I'm not sure how that would work in practice. And this might be a little bit too far along the parade of horribles. Also, interestingly, the federal government does control basically everything that travels in or relates to interstate commerce. So this sounds to me like the kind of thing that the federal government could address if it's so desired to do so. Whatever the exact scope of the coming laws, one result of today's decision is certain the curtailment of women's rights and of their status as free and equal citizens. And no one should be confident that this majority is done with its work. The right Roke and Casey recognized does not stand alone. To the contrary, the court has linked it for decades to other settled freedoms involving bodily integrity, familial relationships, and procreation. The majority, or to be more accurate, most of it, is eager to tell us today that nothing it does casts doubt on precedents that do not concern abortion. But how could that be? The lone rationale for what the majority does today is that the right to elected abortion is not deeply rooted in history. The same could be said, though, of most of the rights the majority claims it is not tampering with. The majority could write just as long an opinion showing, for example, that until the mid-20th century, there was no support in American law for a constitutional right to obtain contraceptives. So one of two things must be true. Either the majority does not really believe in its own reasoning, or... If it does, all rights that have no history stretching back to the mid-19th century are insecure. Here, I think the dissent makes a very logical argument about why, even though the majority is saying nothing is affected here, it's not really up to the majority, right? Because once you've established the precedent that, okay, we have to look at the historical originalism of these various things, we have to look at what's rooted in the nation's history, particularly in the mid-19th century, then the next challenger, somebody that just doesn't want... Uh, contraceptives to be sold that winds up suing and gets to the Supreme Court, the court would, in general, look at that issue in the same way, regardless of what it is said here, evaluate it, and potentially find it wanting. Now, I've just said that I think that's a good argument. I also think it's a bad argument, 
Because one of the things that I think Justice Alito and the majority does well is to establish that abortion is, with particularity, an argument about competing rights. And different folks can decide on what the balance should be between those rights. That's why they send it back to the states. But that isn't the same case for when we talk about same-sex marriage or when we talk about buying contraception. You don't have the destruction of one of the entities holding or not holding those rights in question. And so I do think that you can distinguish those cases, but I also think that the justices here in dissent are right to have a certain amount of yellow slash red flags waving on this topic because they're right. If you can't root these things in the nation's history based on what Justice Alito just said, what does a Supreme Court challenge look like? Does that competing interest question come up a little bit more boldly in whatever their decision might be and make sure that these things are protected because the court doesn't seem to want to strike those down? Maybe, but it's a good logical point that the dissent is making here. One piece of evidence on that score seems especially salient, the majority's cavalier approach to overturning this court's precedents. So this dissent is now doubling up, saying, okay, not only does the logic appear to suggest that these things are at risk, but also the fact that this is being overturned when the chief justice doesn't want it overturned and effectively the newbies on the court are taking over and saying, no, let's overturn it because it's egregiously decided means we've got more risk than we might otherwise have if things were pretty locked down. And again, I can't disagree. The court reverses course today for one reason and one reason only because the composition of this court has changed. Ouch. The court therefore struck a balance in the earlier cases, turning on the stage of the pregnancy at which the abortion would occur then in Casey, the court considered the matter anew and again uphold Roe's core precepts. Casey is in significant measure a precedent about the doctrine of precedent. Central to that conclusion was a full-throated restatement of a woman's right to choose. Like Roe, Casey grounded that right in the 14th Amendment's guarantee of liberty. And you can see here, they're not getting mixed up in the penumbras and emanations of all those various uh, Bill of Rights amendments. They're saying this was always just the 14th Amendment. We don't need to confuse the issue uh, as the majority does. The strength of those state interests is exactly why the court allowed greater restrictions on the abortion right than on other rights deriving from the 14th Amendment. Here, the dissent is defending against Alito's notion that they don't care about babies, right? And they're defending against it, I think, pretty successfully. Because what they say here is, look, when we talk about those other rights, we've got compelling state interests and the government can't do all hosts of things. Here in abortion land, we've got abortions that are prohibited after a point in time which means that some balancing took place. And so you can't tell us that we don't care about babies at all because we do allow for a prohibition on what is otherwise a constitutional right, according to their jurisprudence. And so we are limiting it in a way that we don't limit the freedom of speech or other things like that. Now to the majority, says the dissent, balance is a dirty word as moderation is a foreign concept. The majority would allow states to ban abortion from conception onward, because it does not think forced childbirth at all implicates a woman's right to equality and freedom. So what you got here is you've got a majority and you've got a dissent that are effectively calling each other evil uh, and not taking into account what they say they are taking into account across these various decisions, right? Alito and the majority say, you're not taking into account babies at all and you don't use them in your dissent Casey and Roe don't give them proper credence. In fact, they distort things. Kavanaugh says the decision must be overturned because it completely confuses what people think the states should be entitled to do and what the court can do about what the states are entitled to do, et cetera, et cetera. 
And then the dissent returns volley with, you are doing this because you do not think that forced childbirth implicates a woman's rights to equality and freedom, which I think is a little bit strong for what the majority has decided by putting the particular question in the hands of the states. The constitutional regime we have lived in for the last 50 years recognized competing interests and sought a balance between them. The constitutional regime we enter today erases the woman's interest and recognizes only the states or the federal governments. And here, while I think that you can definitely, even though I just said this was strong, argue that the woman's interest is being reduced in the current court's locution, I do think, again, Alito's point is at least somewhat highlighted by the fact that this doesn't reference uh, the unborn life rather than the state or the federal governments, which is surely what the majority would say, is that, yes, it's a rebalancing, but effectively it's a balancing that says we can't balance it, so we're going to put it to legislatures and voters and democracy because it's improper for the court. And whether or not you think that's right or not is going to be largely dependent on your judicial or legal philosophy And all I would ask when we discuss these kinds of issues is to say, all right, consider that philosophy in something else. If you think it's okay for abortion, how do you feel about it with respect to gun rights? If you don't think it's okay with abortion, how do you feel about it with respect to the freedom of speech or anything else that you can think of? Try to play that little thought experiment in your head because that's true philosophy. That's foundational principles is does it apply in all these instances, regardless of how I feel about the policy determination. So don't think about whether or not you're in favor of or against abortion per se, Think about whether this makes sense in terms of balancing and what's being said between the dissent and the majority here. The majority's failure to understand this fairly obvious point stems from its rejection of the idea of balancing interests in this or maybe in any constitutional context. And what do they cite? The Bruin decision. So over the last 48 hours, you have a dissent here that is saying they're accusing us of this great evil and they're being idiots themselves because they don't understand balancing interests of any kind, check out this Second Amendment gun rights opinion that they just put forth. I mean, this is a fractured Supreme Court. Of course, the majority opinion refers as well to some later and earlier history. On the one side of 1868, it goes back as far as the 13th century, but that turns out to be wheel spinning. First, it is not clear what relevance such early history should have, even to the majority. For instance, in that Bruin case we put forth yesterday, historical evidence that long predates ratification may not eliminate the scope of the right. I mean, they are just sideswiping and subtweeting throughout this whole thing. Common law authorities did not treat abortion as a crime before quickening, the point when the fetus moved in the womb. The majority's core legal postulate then is that we in the 21st century must read the 14th Amendment just as its ratifiers did. And that is indeed what the majority emphasizes over and over again. Or said more particularly, if those people did not understand reproductive rights as part of the guarantee of liberty conferred in the 14th Amendment, then those rights do not exist. As an initial matter, note a mistake in the just preceding sentence. We referred there to the people who ratified the 14th Amendment. What rights did those people have in their heads at the time? But of course, people did not ratify the 14th Amendment. Men did. And they talk at length here about the fact that women weren't a part of that process and how originalism, that historical analysis, is essentially systemically problematic for these kinds of considerations when you do have minorities and other blocks that don't have the same right to actually approve these things uh, as uh, men did at the time. Again, I think it's a good point. Alito's counter volley here is essentially that they can vote on things now and that they can control the state process. Uh, But I think the dissent raises uh, a good point. 
the framers both in 1788 and 16 and 1868 understood that the world changes. So they did not define rights by reference to the specific practices existing at the time. Instead, the framers defined rights in general terms to permit future evolution in their scope and meaning. And this is the big philosophical difference, right? When you're looking at these kinds of cases, this is the dissent. These three justices saying that the Constitution needs to be a living document, needs to be more flexible than originalism, certainly. Textualism doesn't really come up, but this is the same kind of fight that you might have on a purely textualist approach. If you're looking for a textualist opinion, just read anything Gorsuch has ever written. If, Oberfelge explained, rights were defined by who exercised them in the past, then received practices could serve as their own continued justification, even when they conflict with liberty and equality, as later and more broadly understood. The Constitution does not freeze for all time the original view of what those rights guarantee or how they apply. It's a very, very different philosophy on its face. All that is what Casey understood. Casey explicitly rejected the present majority's method. The specific practices of states at the time of the adoption of the 14th Amendment, Casey stated, do not mark the outer limits of the substantive sphere of liberty, which the 14th Amendment protects. It says next that abortion is nothing new. I wanted to hit this footnote a little bit so we can understand. In a perplexing paragraph in its opinion, the majority declares that it need not say whether that statement from Casey is actually true. But how could that be? Has not the majority insisted for the prior 30 or so pages that the specific practice respecting abortion at the time of the 14th Amendment precludes its recognition as a constitutional right? It has. And indeed, it has given no other reason for overruling Roe and Casey. We are not mind readers, but here is our best guess as to what the majority means. It says next that abortion is nothing new. So apparently, the 14th Amendment might provide protection for things wholly unknown in the 19th century. Maybe one day there could be constitutional protection for, oh, time travel. But as to anything that was known back then, such as abortion or contraception, no such luck. And again, you see the level of snark here. This dissent is upset. And eliminating that right, we need to say before further describing our precedents, is not taking a neutral position, as Justice Kavanaugh tries to argue. His idea is that neutrality lies in giving the abortion issue to the states where some can go one way and some another. But would he say that the court is being scrupulously neutral if it allowed New York and California to ban all the guns they want? If the court allowed some states to use unanimous juries and others not? If the court told the states, decide for yourselves whether to put restrictions on church attendance? We could go on. And in fact, we will. Suppose Justice Kavanaugh were to say, in line with the majority opinion, that the rights we just listed are more textually or historically grounded than the right to choose. Well, what then? of the right to contraception or same-sex marriage? Would it be scrupulously neutral for the court to eliminate those rights too? The point of all these examples is that when it comes to rights, the court does not act neutrally when it leaves everything up to the states. And here again, we have a major philosophical difference in opinion. I tend to agree overall that Justice Kavanaugh isn't being neutral. He's trying to put a particular gloss on what it is that he is doing. But when we look at the civics of the United States and in how our government is structured, do these kinds of questions belong with the states? And largely, I think that is going to be based on what the Constitution acknowledges as the rights of the people. Now understand, as I've said in other places here in virtual legality, that the Constitution of the United States is very clear that all of the rights that are not otherwise granted to the federal government are held by the states, and the people. But the Constitution isn't great about delineating between those two things. And for the most part, the states have significantly more localized authority than the federal government. 
They have what we call the police power, the general welfare power. We saw this with things like vaccine mandates and other things that we've otherwise dealt with in the recent past. The state has certain authorities that maybe the federal government doesn't itself have. And here the question becomes, does the state have the ability to regulate something like abortion or same-sex marriage or contraception? And I think the dissent raises a good point that Kavanaugh's argument and Alito's and the majority's argument that these various other things can't be touched come into question when we start looking at the historical precedent for these various things. If there isn't a textual bound for contraceptives, which is what was brought up by the dissent earlier, is that now at issue potentially, right? Even the dissent will acknowledge in this decision that they don't think contraceptives are going to be lost for anybody here, but it is an important legal question to raise. And liberty may require it. This court has repeatedly said, even when those living in 1868 would not have recognized the claim because they would not have seen the person making it as a full-fledged member of the community, raising again the limitation on, in this particular case, women's rights. It can, so it says, neatly extract the right to choose from the constitutional edifice without affecting any associated rights. The majority can kill abortion as a right without worrying about these other things. Think of someone telling you that the Jenga tower simply will not collapse, says the dissent. Today's decision, the majority first says, does not undermine the decisions cited by Roe and Casey, the ones involving marriage, procreation, contraception, and family relationships in any way. Now, the first problem with the majority's account comes from Justice Thomas's concurrence, which makes clear he is not with the program. As we talked about, Thomas is not on board. He wants to kill substantive due process completely. Even placing that concurrence to the side, the assurance in today's opinion still does not work, or at least that is so if the majority is serious about its sole reason for overturning Roe and Casey, the legal status of abortion in the 19th century. Except in the places quoted above, the state interest in protecting fetal life plays no part in the majority's analysis, nor does it even help to take the majority at its word. Assume the majority is sincere in saying for whatever reason that it will go so far and no farther scouts honor. Still, the future significance of today's opinion will be decided in the future, and law often has a way of evolving without regard to original intentions, a way of actually following where logic leads rather than tolerating hard-to-explain lines. And here in the footnote, we see the trouble with their chosen path, which again, the solitary rationale is the 19th century, provides no way to distinguish between the right to choose an abortion and a range of other rights, including contraception. And they're right here. As I said, the dissent is 100% right here, that Alito and the majority and Kavanaugh and everybody else can say whatever they like about these other rights. If a legal challenge comes in and comes up to the Supreme Court and they follow along with the arguments that they've made here and there isn't a historical underpinning for the right to get contraceptives, it is the kind of thing that could be judged in the very same way as this particular case. The Constitution, of course, does not mention the word contraception, and there is no historical right to contraception of the kind the majority insists on. If the majority is serious about its historical approach, then Griswold and its progeny are in the line of fire too. Or if it is not serious, then what is the basis of today's decision? If we had to guess, we suspect the process of this court approving bans on contraception to be low. But once again, the future significance of today's opinion will be decided in the future. Anyway, today's decision taken on its own is catastrophic enough. As a matter of constitutional method, the majority's commitment to replicate in 2022 every view about the meaning of liberty held in 1868 has precious little to recommend it. As a matter of constitutional substance, the majority's opinion has all the flaws its method would suggest. Because laws in 1868 deprived women of any control over their bodies, the majority approves states doing so today. By overruling Roe Casey in more than 20 cases reaffirming or applying the constitutional right to abortion, the majority abandons stare decisis. The court found 
For example, a change in legal doctrine that undermined or made obsolete the earlier decision, a factual change that had the same effect, or an absence of reliance because the earlier decision was less than a decade old was sufficient to overturn a decision. But here, the court or the dissent says none of that exists. Now, Alito argues on the stare decisis question and basically says something along the lines of those aren't the only reasons that you can overturn something. You can find it egregiously in error. Something didn't have to change in technology or perception uh, and that the dissent gets this wrong. But the dissent acknowledges that, but says it's not a very strong overturn in this particular case. First, for all the reasons we have given, Roe and Casey were correct. So first they start out with by saying, hey, just so we're clear, we're going to talk about stare decisis here as if we want to overturn it and why we couldn't because of stare decisis, but we wouldn't want to overturn it. Roe and Casey are all right. In holding that a state could not resolve the debate about abortion in such a definitive way that a woman lacks all choice in the matter, the court protected women's liberty and women's equality in a way comporting with our 14th Amendment precedents. And indeed, the majority comes close to conceding this point. The majority barely mentions any legal or factual changes that have occurred since Roe and Casey. It suggests the two decisions are hard for courts to implement, but cannot prove its case. In the end, the majority says all it must say to override stare decisis is one thing, that it believes Roe and Casey egregiously wrong. Now here, I think this is summarizing a little bit too much. They do go through the steps, at least, to say there's a workability issue, to say these various other things about the reasoning of the decision. But overall, yes. Basically, what the court says here is that Roe and Casey were wrongly decided. Even Chief Justice Roberts says the viability line makes no sense. And that is fundamentally the reason that they overturn it today. Contrary to the majority's view, there is nothing unworkable about Casey's undue burden standard. General standards like the undue burden standard are ubiquitous in the law and particularly in constitutional adjudication. When called on to give effect to the Constitution's broad principles, this court often crafts flexible standards that can be applied case by case to a myriad of unforeseeable circumstances. In fact, I would argue the court often goes too far in legislating those kinds of rules from the bench and that Rowan Casey probably did go too far in that particular framework. But the dissent does say a good point here, which is that, hey, we got standards all over the place. You can't just say that that's unworkable if it's been around since the 90s. This court will surely face critical questions about how the rational basis test applies. Must a state law allow abortions when necessary to protect a woman's life and health? And if so, exactly when? How much risk to a woman's life can a state force her to incur before the 14th Amendment protection of life kicks in? Suppose a patient with pulmonary hypertension has a 30 to 50% risk of dying with ongoing pregnancy. Is that enough? Etc. Etc. Can a state bar women from traveling to another state to obtain an abortion? Can a state prohibit advertising out-of-state abortions or helping women to go to out-of-state providers? Far from removing the court from the abortion issue, the majority puts the court at the center of the coming quote-unquote, which I think is this them framing this, interjurisdictional abortion wars. So... That might well be the case. I do think the dissent goes too far here. And it might go too far in a way that you're not happy with, but the rational basis test ultimately basically says the government and the state wins. Uh, that a government and a state can come up with a rational basis for basically anything uh, that isn't arbitrary or capricious, and they're going to win on most of the statutes and restrictions they put forth, provided that the lower courts actually follow a rational basis test. So they're trying to present all of these questions, and, and they're decent questions, but basically it's going to be whatever the state and its elected representatives decide in this particular instance. Um, so if you are invested in all of this and you're worried about questions like this, vote. Right, go vote for your local legislature. Go run for office uh, in your various states. Uh, but ultimately, she or or they, as the dissent, uh, present a little bit uh, too far 
on this particular question because the rational basis test really is simpler than the undue burden test, which doesn't have an analog in constitutional jurisprudence. When overruling constitutional precedent, the court has almost always pointed to major legal or factual changes undermining a decision's original basis. Conflict over abortion is not a change, but a constant. And as we will later address, the presence of that continuing division provides more of a reason to stick with rather than to jettison existing precedent. So they say that, hey, just because there's conflict, that doesn't present any specific reason to overturn things. That's one of the things that Alito and the majority based their decision on was, hey, the Casey decision said they were going to solve this issue, and it didn't. The disruption of overturning Roe and Casey will therefore be profound. Abortion is a common medical procedure and a familiar experience in women's lives. About 18% of pregnancies in this country end in abortion, and about one quarter of American women will have an abortion before the age of 45. Uh, which is an incredible statistic to me. I personally uh, had no idea that those numbers were so high. They cite a CDC report uh, on that particular question. That is especially so in terms of this being disastrous for women without money. Uh, When we count the cost of Roe's repudiation on women who once relied on that decision, it is not hard to see where the greatest burden will fall, said Casey. In states that bar abortion, women of means will still be able to travel to obtain the services they need. It is women who cannot afford to do so who will suffer most? And the footnote says this statement, of course, assumes that states are not successful in preventing interstate travel to obtain an abortion. And again, I, I don't, I don't know the mechanisms that would be utilized to do that. Uh, but certainly, if that is a concern, that's the kind of thing that the federal Congress could 100% handle. Withdrawing a woman's right to choose whether to continue a pregnancy does not mean that no choice is being made. It means that a majority of today's court has wrenched this choice from women and given it to the states. To allow a state to exert control over one of the most intimate and personal choices a woman may make is not only to affect the course of her life, monumental as those effects might be, it is to alter her views of herself and her understanding of her place in society as someone with the recognized dignity and authority to make these choices. Women have relied on Rowan Casey in this way for 50 years. Many have never known anything else. When Rowan Casey disappeared, the loss of power, control, and dignity will be immense. The court's failure to perceive the whole swath of expectations Roe and Casey created reflects an impoverished view of reliance. Here, the dissent is having that big argument, I promised when we read the majority opinion, which is the nature of reliance. Not a contractual, not a transactional reliance, says the dissent, but an overall concept of dignity, psyche, and the place of an individual in society. In this case, in particular, women. The majority claims that the reliance interests women have in Rowan Casey are too intangible for the court to consider, even if it were inclined to do so. This is to ignore as judges what we know as men and women. The interests women have in Rowan Casey are perfectly, viscerally concrete. Countless women will now make different decisions about careers, education, relationships, and whether to try to become pregnant than they would have when Roe served as a backstop. That seems to us a good description of what would happen if Roe were overturned, talking again about stare decisis, and it seems to us right. The majority responds, if we understand it correctly, well, yes, but we have to apply the law, to which Casey would have said that is exactly the point. Here, more than anywhere, the court needs to apply the law, particularly the law of stare decisis. And it's important to note here, as much as I think the dissent is making plenty of good points, just as I've talked about some other good points from other aspects of the concurrences and the opinion itself, there is no law of stare decisis. It's effectively a guideline used for jurisprudential purposes in order to add legitimacy to the court and the court process. The law of stare decisis as a phrase is not a thing. 
Weakening stare decisis threatens to upend bedrock legal doctrines far beyond any legal decision. Weakening stare decisis creates profound legal instability. And as Casey recognized, weakening stare decisis in a hotly contested case like this one calls into question this court's commitment to legal principle. Mississippi and other states too knew exactly what they were doing in ginning up new legal challenges to Roe and Casey. And now the other shoe drops, courtesy of the same five-person majority at issue in the Texas case. We believe that the Chief Justice opinion is wrong too, but no one should think that there is not a large difference between upholding a 15-week ban on the grounds he does and allowing states to prohibit abortion from the time of conception. Now a new and bare majority of this court, acting at practically the first moment possible, overrules Roe and Casey. It converts a series of dissenting opinions expressing antipathy towards Roe and Casey into a decision greenlighting even total abortion bans. It eliminates a 50-year-old constitutional right that safeguards women's freedom and equal station. It breaches a core rule of law principle designed to promote constancy in the law. And in doing all of that, it places in jeopardy other rights from contraception to same-sex intimacy and marriage. And finally, and this is for Justice Roberts, it undermines the court's legitimacy. With sorrow for this court, but more for the many millions of American women who have today lost a fundamental constitutional protection, we dissent. And that, folks, is about 200 some odd pages of the Dobbs decision. As I said earlier, one of the things that's interesting in these particular decisions, especially with this level of passion and emotionality, is how in any given section, when you're reading the opinion or you're reading a given concurrence or you're reading the dissent, a lot of what they say makes sense to you. These are smart people that are well arguing what it is that they are so passionate about. Now, I do think the Supreme Court has problems. The Supreme Court seems to have fractious relationships and really significant fractures within its core. And I don't know how that's going to manifest itself in the future. I didn't bring up various headlines that I could have here, but there are all sorts of corporations saying all sorts of things. And perhaps most interestingly, the Justice Department and the Attorney General itself has come out and basically said, we strongly disagree and we're going to use all tools at our disposal to not follow this decision. And that is a very interesting time in America. But hopefully this walkthrough of the case presents you in a little under two hours with enough information to a judge for yourself. What do you think of the majority's opinion? What do you think of the originalist bent that they've used now in two consecutive major cases in Bruin and Dobbs to come up with the decisions that they have come up with here? What do you think of the concurrences, particularly Justice Thomas, who says down with substantive due process, and Chief Justice Roberts, who says the majority is effectively out of control and is doing this when I wouldn't have done that and God help us all, basically, from Chief Justice Roberts, or the dissent, which points out that no matter what hand-waving the majority does, there might be some significant issues in the future that a decision based on these premises introduce to the entire jurisprudence of the country. I hope you found this informative. I hope you found this educational and helpful. I hope I treated it with the sensitivity it deserves. Please leave those comments. Otherwise, if you want to support us here in virtual legality, we've got a Utreon, we've got a Patreon. You can tell your friends, upvote, downvote, subscribe, do all that fun stuff. Either way, I'm very appreciative of your support and of sticking with me now for two hours or so. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, 
please consult your own legal counsel.